Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Recording in progress. Yay. Good morning. Good morning. Once again, my day is brightened by your shining face on this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, of course, this will come out two weeks later. Yeah, but let's let's say a few things we're thankful for today anyways. You. Aw, and you. <laughs> and this podcast and our fellow travelers, of course. Um. I'm thankful to be living in Santa Barbara. I'm thankful that the sun is shining today. Um, I'm thankful that my sweet puppy is curled up here next to me. I'm thankful that I have people that still reach out to me and remember that it's the anniversary of my daughter's passing. Today is, right. It's special that people after four years, you know, it doesn't take much to just send a little like heart or something to let someone know that you're thinking about them. That's really something I'm grateful for and the work that we get to do. I mean, it's frustrating to feel like you're pushing a a boulder up a hill, but we live, we live a life that, um, you know, like many, many, many years ago when I left the corporate world and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had a new baby that was coming and I just, I just didn't want to go back to working in an office again. And I sat there and I thought, I want to do something that every day I know that I'm making a difference. And this path has really gifted me that to know that every day I get to do something that lightens somebody's mood or helps them feel loved and connected, or I get to breathe for a baby. I don't know. There's a million different ways I get to do things that I feel like are positive, And that is such a gift. I am thankful for what you just said, especially the fact that we reached a path to place where we're actually doing good for people and that it brought me to you and to where we are right now and, and how everything it seems to be growing and the boulder does seem to be getting a little bit lighter even though the hill is getting longer um that's true i am thankful for my health uh buried two people this week that i know and uh it's been very sad and i am thankful for my little retreat in southern utah I am thankful to my ex-wife and I that we get along great. And I'm right now at her house because this afternoon, all our children are coming in for the weekend and uh, we'll have Thanksgiving tomorrow. And then on Saturday, my oldest stepson is getting married and my grandbaby is going to be here. And so that, you know, how can you be much more grateful for anything besides that? Yeah. That I'm well received in the world and that people are, are, um, wanting to hear what I have to say and that it's making a difference. And every day you and I get letters from fellow travelers telling us that, you know, we made a difference and you always say things like, well, we didn't really make a difference. You made the difference. You, you, we just helped or something like that. But uh, so that, um, you know, I'm trying to stay in the, in the micro, not really get into the macro. So I'll just, I'll just stick with, with those sorts of things. Um, And I'm thankful that I was, 
trained in a way that allowed me to learn and become competent in breach delivery, which is our topic for today, even though we probably mention it, you know, probably at over 50% of our podcasts, somehow breach gets mentioned. You said we really never focused on a podcast on breach birth. Right. And we got a couple of letters. Um, <laughs> we got a couple of letters asking us more about the risks and the downsides to breach. So I think we're going to really try our best to give a real balanced, um, comprehensive conversation around what is the real deal with breach? Like, why is it so feared and how can you um, manage it safely? And what are the downsides if you're getting true informed consent that you would want to be considering? So, yeah. And how, and how rare it is that you get true informed consent on breach delivery. And we'll be, I've got a, yeah. a consult that I'm going to be reading uh, along that same topic that just is very timely because it came yesterday and, and people will love that. But before we do that, got a couple back uh, follow-ups from previous podcasts. All right. Mm-hmm. One is that um, uh, we talked about epidurals last week and epidurals. Uh, one of the things I forgot to talk about was the fact that, that the medicine in the epidural does cross the placenta and people say, Oh, it's a local anesthesia. It doesn't cross the placenta. And a lot of epidurals these days contain fentanyl. Yep. As you know, so there was just an article actually that came out um, that I thought was really important. I'm just going to read the highlights to it. But the title of the article uh, put out by the Association for Diagnostics and Laboratory Medicine is when mothers receive fentanyl epidurals during labor, the fentanyl gets passed on to their babies. Research shows that fentanyl and epidurals can pass on to babies during labor. While the infants in this study did not experience adverse effects from this fentanyl transfer, as far as we know, the, this information is crucial to ensure that new mothers don't get falsely accused of fentanyl abuse. Hmm. Okay. From 1992 to 2012, the proportion of pregnant women admitted to substance abuse treatment facilities who reported a history of prescription opioid abuse increased from 2% to 28%, which is like, geez, you know, Wow, I don't even know how many percent. That's like a thousand-fold increase. Yeah. The alarming rise has led to a parallel increase in hospitals drug testing mothers and their newborns for opiates. While some hospitals only drug test mothers and newborns if they suspect the mother is of uh, expect the mother of drug abuse, suspect a number of hospitals have begun to test all mothers and babies to prevent discrimination against women from disadvantaged demographics or what's called profiling. My question for this, and you, like I can see on your face, is: Is this even legal? You know, <laughs> can they just can they just do it on all women who come in? Right. Who said that? Who? How does how's that even how is that even possible? Um. They said, and and as these universal drug screening programs become more common, it is critical that laboratory professionals and clinicians have the information they need to interpret drug test results correctly. False positives can have serious consequences, particularly in states like Alabama, where drug use during pregnancy is criminalized. Since fentanyl is usually included in epidurals, a team of researchers from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston set out to determine whether getting an epidural during labor impacts urine drug test results in newborns. I mean, it seems like a pretty good idea, don't you think? Yeah. 
Right. Should have been done probably long before once they started using fentanyl or even before they started using fentanyl in epidurals. Don't you think they probably should have tested to see if it crosses into the baby? Yes, I do. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I knew that. Somehow I knew the answer to that question was going to be yes. Okay. (laughs) To do this, the researchers performed drug tests on 96 urine samples. So it's a small study from newborns whose mothers had no history of fentanyl abuse and 82 of whom had received epidurals and 14 who didn't. One third of the babies whose mothers received fentanyl in their epidurals tested positive for the drug, while all 14 newborns whose mothers did not receive fentanyl tested negative. So 33% of women who get a fentanyl in their epidural tested positive. Let's see a little bit more, one last thing about why. The likelihood of fentanyl passing on to the babies correlated with the duration and the cumulative dose of the epidural. So in other words, the longer you had an epidural, mm, yeah, that they continue to you know, a, a put fentanyl in the epidural. If you had an epidural drip and that had fentanyl in it, then they said that mothers treated for more than 10 hours with a cumulative dose of greater than 100 micrograms of fentanyl had children with positive fentanyl tests. The most important clinical implication of these findings is that a positive ne- neonatal urine fentanyl test cannot and should not be used to identify fentanyl drug abuse in mothers who receive fentanyl-containing epidural anesthesia. I mean, that's one part of what I would be thinking about. However, the other part I would be thinking about if I was a mom, and I was just in the hospital with that woman we talked about, and they offered her fentanyl, just fentanyl, not in the epidural. Oh, we used to do that. Used to be something called Stadol. Yeah. And then even even Demerol and even yeah. morphine were given. She had morphine over over <laughs> over fentanyl. But um I want you to think about this brand new baby who has fentanyl now in their system and what they experience as we talk about imprinting, right? Like the mom's emotions and stuff imprint on the baby. So if you have no other experiences besides that, those new experiences, including the effects of fentanyl, is that possible that that human being would have this sensitivity or inclination or desire to have that feeling again? Just something to kind of ponder on. And fentanyl is one of the scariest drugs that are out there right now on the street. People are dying from fentanyl left and right. It's actually pretty terrifying. So I didn't know you were going to talk about that today. I had a, I had a, um, I had a consult with somebody this week. We, I did a processing session um, on a, for a woman and um, she was tested and tested positive for drugs. Uh, it was a, false positive and it got flagged in her chart and it caused her a lot of problems through her, her last pregnancy. So um, very timely, actually. Yeah. I think if any of you practice long enough, you're going to have people that have uh, false positive drug tests and it's going to cause a whole problem with child protective services and all that other stuff. Yeah. But in this study, they say this sentence bliss, and this is one of those things that just kills me. They say, while the infants in this study did not experience adverse effects. Right. How do they know? Right. 
did they did they give them all a survey afterwards and ask them to fill it out this year and then five years from now and see if there's a yeah. different I mean how do they say stuff like that oh I got because they didn't die they didn't have some sort of seizure they didn't end up in the NICU they didn't have uh respiratory distress those are the things that they're looking for but there's many more things to consider you're right which are never considered right right all right so um okay then I've got a couple of things on uh, one really important one, because this just came out last week and was sent to me by a group that I'm actually this came out in October, but it was sent to me last week by a group that I follow on um, on Signal. We have a group with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Uh, James Thorpe, Dr. Um, uh, Poppy Daniels, a bunch of people. We have this group where we share information all the time, and this one's called as the number of vaccines for pregnant women rises, so does vaccine hesitancy. And I thought this was important because of the time of year we're coming into right now. So um, it's, and because, because one of the persons quoted in this article is a person that I know pretty well, and I have challenges for him, and maybe I'll even reach out to him. I, I highly suspect he won't want to come on the podcast, but I might even ask him to be on, not in a confrontational way, but you'll see what I mean. Pregnant women have a higher risk of severe illness from respiratory viruses. This is the opening sentence. So what's wrong with this sentence, Bliss? I don't even, I don't want to put you on the spot. When they say that they have a higher risk. That, that we don't know exactly what that means yeah. numerically. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Instead of, instead of one in a million, it's one in 800,000. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I'm just making that number up. But right. by definition, you could say that's higher risk and you would be accurate but you wouldn't be correct. Um, as the winter respiratory illness season fast approaches, this is the first year that four vaccines are being welcomed during pregnancy. Four. I want you to, I want you to like hear the language that they use too. Yet there are already signs that fewer pregnant women are getting vaccinated, putting themselves and their newborns at increased risk of severe illness and death. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, quote, we are meeting more resistance than I ever remembered, said Dr. Neil Silverman, a maternal fetal medicine specialist at UCLA, UCLA Health. Quote, we didn't get this kind of pushback on this scale before the plant, the, the excuse me, the pandemic. Because <laughs> <laughs> now all vaccines are lumped together as bad. And I said, and I and I said to myself, I wrote a note here to our, ask our fellow travelers who are listening. Ask yourself, why is he surprised at this? Why is he surprised that there's more vaccine hesitancy now? Does he not read? <laughs> does he does he not know the damage being caused by certain vaccines? Does he not know that none of them have ever been tested for safety? Does it not know that that information is now out there and that people are waking up? Because he acts like he's surprised. All right. In September, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, that bastion of, of virtue, recommended that the first time that pregnant people get the RSV vaccine. Now, we did I did a whole reel on that. People can scroll back. I think in September, I, when it first got approved, I, I did a reel of it. But he said RSV can be dangerous for children younger than five. Is that true? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it likely? No. Okay. 
The new guidance means pregnant women will be encouraged to get four vaccines to protect against flu, COVID, pertussis, as well as respiratory syncytial virus or RSV. And I said, uh, actually, it's they're getting vaccinated four shots, but they're getting six vaccines because they're also getting pertussis, I mean, uh, diphtheria and tetanus in there. By the way, none of these vaccines that I just mentioned have ever been tested against placebo. And some contain aluminum and the flu vaccine, depending on which kind you get, possibly contains thimerosal, which is mercury. Right. However, a recent CDC report found growing doubts about vaccination during pregnancy. A survey was conducted in March and April. Almost a quarter said they were very hesitant about getting the flu shot. That's a significant increase over the 17.2% the year before. So it went up from 17.2 to 25% hesitancy. Hesitancy doesn't mean they don't get it. They just were asked about the survey. They just asked questions. <laughs> yeah. They asked questions. Good. <laughs> All right. So here, Dr. Denise Jamison, uh, Vice President for Medical Affairs at the University of Iowa Healthcare and a spokesperson for the American College of OBGYN says, even prior to the pandemic, it was a struggle to get pregnant women vaccinated. Okay. Do they ever ask themselves why it was a struggle? No. Um, last year, the CDC study found 47.2% of expected mothers got their flu shots down from 57.5% who got flu shots prior to COVID in 2019. So 10% drop. In 2022, just more than half or 55.4% got Tdap vaccine and only 27.3% of women got the COVID booster. I mean, that's still incredibly high to me. That still one out of four women are choosing to get this crap of a of a fake medication, um, the COVID booster. According to Dr. Linda Eckert, an OBGYN and global health and immunization specialist at the University of Washington, she says, there's a bias that some patients have more than they used to about how they feel about a vaccine. Right. People so are waking look, up. Yeah, but I look at that and I think, yeah, there's a bias on the people that don't want to take it. Is there a bias on the people that want to keep giving it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, do they ever look in the mirror when they're speaking and see the words that are coming out of their mouth? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. We all have a bias. They just don't acknowledge theirs. They think that theirs is truth and not a bias, all right? She says, pregnant women are primed to question everything they put in their bodies. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, experts say. <laughs> experts in what? You know, I think, I think my, I think my uh, plumber would know that it's probably not wise to put things in a pregnant woman's body that they don't know about, all right? There are a lot of myths out there, myths. So again, listen to the language and how this article is written. By the way, the authors of this article are Erica Edwards and Jane Weaver. I just want to give them <laughs> credit. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> uh, let's see, where was I? Uh, oh, there are a lot of myths out there, what I would call blatant disinformation that is intended to be more politically charged, not based in science. That's from Dr. Melissa Simon, an OBGYN at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. You know, that's a really, really interesting statement because what she's actually saying is she's projecting what they are doing onto people that aren't listening to her. 
because she is they are giving out blatant disinformation that is politically charged and not based on science. And they're mm-hmm. saying that the other side is doing it. This is a classic technique that that people use to gaslight you. Mm-hmm. You of exactly what they themselves are doing and then and then blame you for not going along. The only way doctors can address those concerns effectively, Dr. Dion said, is to create an open atmosphere where they feel comfortable telling you what they were worried, what they're worried about. Yeah, well, we talk about that. That's really not possible in the medicalized model because you don't have the time. Right. And all the financial incentives are the wrong way. As we talked about last week, I read that article, that that thing about um, how uh, that company that she was working for said our, our, our reimbursement from Medicare is based on how many our higher rate of vaccination. Right. Doctors perfected their skills addressing patients. Vaccine concerns, excuse me, addressing patients' vaccine concerns when COVID shots became crucial, said Dr. Sarah Packman, a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Yeah, we had so much practice, she said. So they learned how to coerce people with the COVID vaccine. So now they should be able to coerce people to get all these other vaccines as well. Then they say that, Then the next segment says, the title of it is, Flu and COVID are dangerous during pregnancy. So again, how dangerous are they? Well, not very, really. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of people who know people who got hospitalized during their pregnancy with the flu. Are there some? Sure. But would, would you use the word dangerous? Only if you're trying to coerce people down a path you want them to take. Right? Um, I was going to ask you, since 2010, how many of your clients do you think received vaccines in pregnancy? That were mine from the start? None. And how many of those people had adverse reactions to getting sick during their pregnancy that had them hospitalized that you were concerned about none same with me (laughs) that's including all of the sanctuary people you know thousands of women that we served during that time so yeah just wanted to say that yeah but that's just anecdotal stuff bliss i know but you're skewing your information yeah you're giving out misinformation (laughs) i don't care It's our podcast. We can say whatever we want. Okay, so pregnant women are one of the most at-risk groups for flu complications. Again, that it's like it's like doom and gloom language. What's the actual risk for a pregnant woman? They don't tell you. COVID can also be harmful during pregnancy and can increase the risk of preterm birth and other complications. By the way, if you look at the if you look at the uh, side effect of the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine. You find that one of the things it does is increase preterm birth. <laughs> so <laughs> about preterm birth, maybe they shouldn't be giving the RSV vaccine. Yeah, weigh out your weigh out your risks on your own and make your own decision. Well, here's a here's a sad story. The virus almost killed Haley Graham of Swansboro, North Carolina, and caused her son to be born three months early. She was 27 years old and six months pregnant. She went to the emergency room gasping for air. 
I couldn't breathe and I could feel my baby moving anymore. A COVID test came back positive. Within days, her lungs collapsed and she developed two pulmonary emboli. She was intubated and put into medically induced coma to give her lungs time to heal. Graham had no idea that doctors had to deliver her baby early until she woke up more than a month later. Wow. Right. Yeah. How many Haley's out there are, uh, how many Haley's are there out there? Right. Versus how many women had COVID and didn't even know it. Yeah. Right. And how many women have had complications from getting vaccinated for COVID? Right. This woman was not vaccinated because interestingly enough, they actually say in the next sentence, though COVID vaccines were available by summer 2021, Graham's doctor at the time advised her against getting the shot, citing a lack of evidence about their safety. Good for good for her doctor. Yeah, really. I mean, he probably got in trouble for doing that, but good for him. It was not until August that year, a month after she had been hospitalized with COVID, that the CDC had said it had gathered enough evidence to recommend the shots for pregnant women. Mm -hmm. I would challenge the CDC to present any evidence other than one paper, which has been refuted, that says that there's now it's safe to give it to pregnant women. Because ultimately, most data coming out uh, where research is less controlled and, uh, and corrupted shows it's absolutely positively unsafe for pregnant women and for newborn babies and unnecessary. That's the end of that. Okay. Bliss, what is Element? L-M-N-T. It's an amazing sponsor, first of all. We love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like... Us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have um, 1,000 milligrams of sodium. 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a long <laughs> time sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, they've been doing really well and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite, uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine and yours is mango chili. Yeah. But I, I do have I do have some sad news. Aw. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to drink element. That's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Okay. So last, now is the time for flu as well as COVID shots just ahead of the typical winter respiratory virus season ex experts say. 
By the way, this is a really huge, another red flag for the uh, our podcast listeners. Anytime a news article or a news news report on television say experts say, it reminds me of a skit from Second City TV where John Candy was a uh, uh, a lab worker wearing a lab coat, and he was always like the they always refer to him as the expert. And he was just this funny looking guy wearing a lab coat, and because he had a lab coat on, he was an expert. <laughs> Uh, those shots can be given at any stage of pregnancy, according to the CDC, talking about flu and COVID. But the Tdev vaccine is given between the 27th and 36th weeks gestation um, because it's supposedly the best timing because babies are not eligible for the shots themselves and they are several, until they are several months old. Okay, so ask yourself a question. Why? Why? Why, if it's so good, why did they wait to give it till they're three months old? I'm just, you know, I don't want them to get it at all, but why, why, what's the deal? Babies who catch whooping cough, especially those younger than three months old, are more likely to have serious problems, have to be cared for in a hospital, and possibly even die. Tammy Scoff, a CDC epidemiologist, wrote in an email. And the last part is the vaccine is given during each subsequent pregnancy because those antibodies decrease in a mother's body over time. So if you have a baby this year and you have a baby next year, we've talked about this before, you're supposed to get a Tdap shot each pregnancy. But actually literature shows that using antibody response as a marker of in immunity or effectiveness is flawed science. Antibody response is not necessarily what, what gives you your immunity. So again, Everything that they accuse the people who are hesitant of is exactly what they themselves are doing. The single dose RSV shot from Pfizer is recommended between 32 and 36 weeks. It was found to, quote, lower the risk of severe RSV among infants by 91% within the first three months after birth, a time when babies are especially vulnerable. So I just did a little bit of math. And I wanted you to know that if if one baby gets one in ten thousand babies gets bad RSV, that's a that's a percentage of zero point zero one percent. And if you lower that by ninety one percent, it's now one in nineteen thousand one hundred. So that's zero point zero five percent. So you've cut it, the risk in basically in half if it's one in ten thousand. So when they say it's a ninety one percent reduction, it's again it's 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 statistical trickery. <laughs> I like people, that. People need to look at these numbers and be very, very critical of them. Again, who's publishing the article? What is their agenda? What's what you know? And who are their experts? All right. Plus, the RSV, as we talked about, or I talked about in the real, increases your risk of preterm labor and preeclampsia, which of course isn't mentioned here. And then here's the kicker: doctors insist there is no danger in vaccinations during pregnancy. That's a sentence and a paragraph all by itself. So Dr. Silverman says, fi finishes up, he says, we've been vaccinating pregnant people for decades. While any vaccine for any person pregnant or not can have a rare side effect, those serious side effects are exceedingly low. And none of these new and none of these vaccines have ever been shown to have any negative impact on the fetus or the newborn. This is a guy that a lot of people in LA trust a lot. I mean, he's, he's a good MFM. Mm -hmm. 
saying that they've never been shown to have any negative impact on the fetus or newborn. Please, Neil, read. Read. Read Vax Unvaxed. All right. Read chapter two of Vax Unvaxed. Vaccines are a very efficient way to protect mothers and to protect their babies in one fell swoop. <laughs> anyway, what is a fell swoop? A good question. Yeah. Somebody's going to have to look that up and, and message me to look up what a fell swoop. I want to know what a fell swoop is. Okay. All right. Sorry. I had to go off on that tangent because it was so timely. I, I also want to make a public service announcement uh, to counteract a public service announcement by CVS. Did you say public cervix announcement? No, I didn't. But if it sounded like that, then that's probably it what does. I said. All right. Um, CVS Pharmacy is looking for pregnant, they're targeting pregnant women to sign up for a study for because Moderna has a new mRNA CMV trial going on for cytomegalovirus. So if you're pregnant and you want to sign up for this trial, contact CVS Pharmacy. <laughs> don't. <laughs> That's a joke. I don't know what to tell you. And then one last thing was, um, I think I might have talked about last week about a, a writing a letter of, of an exemption for a, a, a woman. I think I did because I, I brought it up in the context of that little quote from that company saying that their um, reimbursement rate from Medicare was tied to their to their rating. Um, but I then I started thinking about exemptions. And my question is this. Um, why do we need a form to not get something? Yeah. Shouldn't we need a medical clearance to get it? Yes. It's yeah, like I, it's like what uh, Nathan Riley said about like you should give us statistic, you should give us um science on why we would deviate from nature rather than the opposite, us having to prove that following nature is the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I mean, I I have to get a note, you know. <laughs> It's, I I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I can't remember when my kids were in school. But didn't you have to give a note to allow your kid to go on the field trip? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, in other words, I don't know if you needed. Maybe you needed a note to not allow your kid to go on the field trip too. I don't. I don't. Maybe that's not a good analogy. But the idea that you need a note to not get something, but otherwise you are, you know, expected to get it without any medical clearance whatsoever to get a medical product. It's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Okay. There we go. So I'm sure right now we're probably going to be taking a break. <laughs> we are. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about breach birth. Yay. So Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. 
and it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yeah. <laughs> And the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. I love when we're I, back. I love when I blow you away. Yeah, we're back. And I love it when I blow you away with, with this 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 stuff on um but it it's so relevant to our to our um our listeners. Mm, yes. I, I I you know I just I don't understand the devotion to something that doesn't necessarily do good, certainly has problems and not giving people informed consent, telling them that vaccine hesitancy is is up and it's bad that it's up. And we're just not doing our job as doctors to convince people to take this product. But no, no, look into the product before you just give it to them, before you recommend it to them and let them decide and then support their decision. That's our ethical obligation. Yeah, and I'm happy people are waking up. That's good. You have some letters on breech birth. Let's let's hear it. Let's hear it because yeah, I've not heard these letters, so this will be good. Okay. Um. So Jordan, back in August, asked us, um, "Hi, Doctor Sue and Bliss. Can you talk about the risks of breech vaginal delivery? I've scoured your previous episodes and have learned all of the reassuring things and benefits, but I haven't been able to find." much info from you on the risks. I'm currently 20 weeks pregnant, which that was back in August. So I don't know if she's had a baby yet. Um, I had a primary C-section for Frank breach with my first 
an epiduralized VBAC at the hospital with my second, who was Vertex. And I'm planning for a home birth with this baby. That's awesome. My baby has been breached for the last few weeks. I know I have time um, for it to turn head down, but my C-section baby was breached from 18 weeks on. And I want to educate myself in the event that this baby stays breached as well as really know the full weight of my decision. Um, thank you, Jordan. And then Sarah, just um, on November 11th said, hello, I recently attended a neonatal resuscitation course with a retired midwife. She stated she wanted to bring breech delivery back and did a pilot study in the hospital setting. Um, however, she decided to discontinue due to so many babies struggling after birth, even for physiological births that went smoothly. She concluded that maybe these babies are in this position due to low tone, so they aren't tucking and turning. I would like to hear your experience or research you may have on statistics for number of cases of disorders related to breach like CP. Additionally, she strongly encourages attending breach vaginal birth as a midwife. Oh, discourages, excuse me. Additionally, she strongly discourages attending breech vaginal birth as a midwife due to the lack of ability to prove you didn't cause these conditions during birth. How do you feel about this and what recommendations do you have for protection from potential legal repercussions? Thanks from a midwifery student, Sarah. Well, the last question I'll answer first. Um, okay. The fact that the, it's a very defensive question. I, I'm and. and and I, I honor Sarah for asking it, but the idea that you're not going to do something because something might go wrong and then you'll be blamed for it means you're probably not, you probably are in the wrong profession um, because the data doesn't support the fact that most breech babies have something wrong with them and that if something goes wrong, it's going to be uh, a blamed on you. I think more often than not, we see people angry about outcomes because they weren't given choices and they weren't given informed consent and they weren't respected uh, or they, or they were taken care of by strangers who had no contact with them. As we talked last week in Shelley's podcast about traumatized birth workers, working shifts who, who didn't uh, who are scared of, of their own shadow in the, in the hospital. So you can't go into this thinking that the baby is breached because there's something wrong with it. And I shouldn't do a breach because something comes out and the baby's got a problem that I'm going to be blamed for it. I just, I don't, I would, I don't know. I'd like to hear your talk, your thoughts on that bliss, because that's just not something that really should enter into the practitioner's mind uh, as a reason to not do something because that you could, you know, you could say that with every baby that stays OP or every baby that, you know, doesn't do all the right things or every, every labor that's delayed. Um, where, where do you draw a line as to what you think is a safe baby to the, or safe mother baby combination to take care of? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, your point when you said uh, you, you're probably in the wrong profession is probably the most accurate thing, because, you know, if we as midwives believe that bodily autonomy is really important and that um, informed decision making is is an inherent right that we have, then us supporting that and giving families these options is part of 
what we're meant to do. And there are no guarantees. We know that the longer that we do this, whether you have a vertex baby or a breech baby, that we not all babies make it. This is just part of part of the risk of being alive. And so if you're terrified of birth and you're terrified of what can happen, it could happen in any any situation. So I think that that's the most accurate thing. And just because there's risk to something doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do. But that's a decision that you have to make inside of your own heart and soul. And um, I think you and I are cut from a particular kind of cloth that we believe in doing the right thing, even if it potentially is um, not necessarily the thing that everybody would accept as the safest thing to do. That doesn't mean that we're being unsafe. It means that we're supporting things that are not the norm. And in order to give people bodily autonomy, that's part of, that's part of it. And, you know, go back and listen to the story that I talked about, about this woman that I've been supporting for the last few weeks who, you know, went outside of everybody's comfort zone, but it was, it was the right thing for her, you know, and there was no real reason for anybody to tell her that that option should be taken away. So I, that's how I feel about breach. I think breach is a variation of normal. And um, I do think that you need to have skills in case something goes wrong. But the majority of the time, just like in a head down baby, those babies are going to be born and be absolutely fine. And we're not going to need to step in. And sometimes with all births, we have to step in. Yeah. I mean, what you said higher, I, I like what you said, higher chance does not mean high risk. And what's the solution for this particular situation? If you're worried about all breech babies, will sectioning all breech babies solve all the problems right wrong i mean yeah it, it won't you know it won't. okay yeah. not only will it not solve the problem for that baby it might cause more long-term health problems for that baby the it will probably cause problems for the mother in many different ways both physiologic and sociologic and psychologic but it also will cause problems for all that mom's future babies because now you've got a scarred uterus so when a baby chooses to be breached, there, you know, there is no perfect solution. There's always a, a way, uh, there's always a downside. And that's sort of what the question that was asked originally was, what are some of the downsides and the risks? So let's talk about that for just a second, because there's a lot of misconception about there. And I, I'm going to read a, in a little bit, I'm going to read a, a, a consult from maternal fetal medicine specialist on a breech mom. And We'll pick, we'll, you know, he's not here to defend himself, but we'll pick it apart anyway. Um, so if you look through the literature, there's there's many different papers that support vaginal breech birth and that also support cesarean for breech birth. But if you break them down, the differences are very small and the and the downsides of cesarean birth are almost never uh, equated to the to the downsides of vaginal breech birth. Plus, one of the biggest problems in these papers that compare vaginal breech birth to cesarean for breech birth is that they're taking an incorrect premise. What you really want to do is you want to compare what's the risk of a vaginal breech birth versus a head down vaginal birth. Because no one's suggesting you should section all head down babies. Yet wow. if you... <laughs> <laughs> there might be some doctors out there that do, but yeah. Right. But no, nobody, nobody with a, with a thinking brain um, 
says that. <laughs> right. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting closer to it anyway in some countries with a 50 or 70% C-section rate. But what we're doing is we're comparing apples to oranges. We need to compare apples to apples. And we need to understand that really what's the risk of vaginal breech birth versus head down uh, birth to the babies. And the best data that I've found, and there's, again, there's lots of different data out there. The, it's interesting. If you look at through the, all the papers on breech birth that usually compare it to cesarean birth, almost all of them find very little difference between that, even with cesarean birth, except the one term breech trial, which is the, you know, the outlier. And yet it's the one that was accepted because of what I call confirmation bias. It's what the doctors were looking for. And so they picked this one paper, but most of the papers, which are much larger in numbers and are corrected for a lot of the errors in the term breach trial, um, found that there was really no difference. But the, but the group that's put together the best averages on this is the Royal College of OBGYN. And that's, from, that's the British equivalent of the American College. And they looked at that and they say that the risk of a neonatal death in birth uh, from a breach C-section, a C-section for breach is about one in 2000. And the risk for a neonatal death with a vaginal breach birth is about one in 500. So what you're describing is about a fourfold risk, which sounds awful if you want mm -hmm. to make that appeal. Now the risk of a neonatal death in a head down vaginal delivery, we're talking about term babies here, is about one in a thousand. So that breech birth vaginally is about twice as risky as a head down baby. One in a thousand versus one in 500. But the difference is actually only one in a thousand extra babies. So if you add that up, you, you get two per thousand for um, breech and one per thousand for head down. So one in a thousand is the real risk of having a vaginal breech birth versus a head down vaginal birth. Some people would look at that and say, oh, I don't want to take that risk. It's too high a risk and I'm not taking that. So then they'd rather have the one in 2000 risk. But then they're but then they're not thinking downstream or maybe they are and they're putting it all together and they've decided that we only want one baby or we're willing to have a, a VBAC with, in the hospital or repeat C-section or go through all the monkey business with the scare tactics with feedback, but I don't want that. And I understand that if you're given that number, mm -hmm. but one in a thousand is actually quite a small number. And if you look at, instead of looking at relative risk, if you look at actual risk, and this is what I do with a lot of things when I counsel people is I look at, well, what's the risk of it not happening? And the risk of not having a neonatal death in a baby who's breached at term by cesarean section is 99.95%. The risk of not having a neonatal death with a head down vertex vaginal delivery is 99.9%. And the risk of not having a neonatal death with a breech vaginal delivery at term is 99.8%. So if you tell a woman she's got a 99.8 versus a 99.9 .9 or 99.95 chance, that doesn't sound like much. And that's the, what I, I call it statistical trickery. That's yeah. the, that, that's how you put your numbers out there to give people information. And you can, you can easily use the numbers to skew somebody down a path that you um, want them to take. But you said earlier, there is no perfect solution. There is no scenario where no babies will die. Right. So that's, 
a good way to look at the neonatal death risk. The other question that was, they ask is what's like the the other morbidities risk? Right. And with born breach, there are slightly higher morbidities. And they start out with a pretty universal finding that breech babies have a lower one-minute APGAR score. Now, APGAR scores at one minute have not been tied to long-term deficit, but it may require some attention. So people need to be trained in NRP. Um, that's pretty universal. That's from pretty much every paper, including the paper that I did with Rixa on breech birth. We found the same outcome as well. And even though our paper isn't powered enough to reach statistical significance, it is a trend that you see everywhere. So the one-minute APGAR scores tend to be lower. Five-minute APGAR scores tend to be not statistically different. So by five minutes, the babies have done recovered perfectly well. And by two years of age, they have found no difference in neurodevelopmental delay in babies born breech, vaginally, or by C-section. No, no difference. Um, there's a slight increased risk of, an, of potentially a fetal injury with a breech baby such as a brachial plexus injury, or maybe a broken clavicle or a broken humerus. Obviously nobody likes the idea of having that, but that that is slightly increased. But the, the weird thing is, is that doing a cesarean section doesn't lower the risk of those injuries. Some of the worst injuries in the term breach trial occurred at breach at cesarean section, probably because the people delivering them didn't know how to deliver a breech baby. And even though a baby's coming out through an abdominal hole instead of the vagina, you still have to know your movements. You still have to know how to sweep an arm down carefully. You still have to know how to rotate or how to flex the baby's head to deliver. And if you don't know those skills and you start yanking and pulling on babies or cutting bigger holes and teeing the incisions, as we hear about a lot, then, then you're going to cause more morbidity, right? There is, a, there probably is a slightly greater risk. Uh, and now cerebral palsy and hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is probably slightly, slightly higher in breaches. But I don't know that that's true for properly selected term breaches with a skilled practitioner. Because most papers that look at that, they lump all these breaches together from different, different centers with different protocols different levels of skill. They may include preemies in there. They may include anomalous fetuses in there. So the, 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 the data isn't very clear, Bliss, on, on, on this uh, higher rate. But I will just tell you again, and my numbers don't reach statistical significance, but anecdotally, I've not seen it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, the, and the other thing I would like to say is just, we don't, you know, we don't really know because we mess with babies and moms so much. It's like, it would actually be more like informative to be able to compare like free birth to, to hospital-based deliveries or, you know, something in the midwifery model that's less medicalized where they're not interfering as much, but you still have a skilled practitioner compared to a study that's done in the hospital, because, you know, we, we listen to these things like these injuries and cerebral palsy and all of this stuff. And it's really hard to understand and pull apart. Is that because the provider was fearful and was not comfortable with breach that they responded in a way that caused trauma 
Or is that just inherent when a breach is just coming that it has these different risk factors? And it's it's really hard for us to be able to know these things in the studies because most of it is conducted inside of the medical model. And that is not always the same as physiologic breach. Well, yeah, and they're not going to look either. They're not going to do that that study. But common sense would tell you that, yes, you probably have better outcomes if you just leave women alone or have a skilled practitioner, but not in the hospital type type model where they're, where people don't know what they're doing. It's a very, it's a very nuanced discussion to have mm-hmm. about, about whether or not the, the breach birth is something that can lead to, to more problems. Um, there are people who have the theory that some babies are breached because they're neurologically different. Mm-hmm that mean neurologically damaged? No, because they didn't find that. Right. But there was one study once, which keeps getting repeated. And, and actually, you know, I've never really looked at it, but it, it talks about the fact that breech babies on average will have less coils in their umbilical cord, which what does that mean? It means maybe when they were little, they were moving less. They weren't spinning around as much. So maybe neurologically, there's something different about them. Does that mean it's bad? No. I mean, some of the brightest people I know were born breech or are left-handed. <laughs> so uh, uh, not that there's any relation between the two, but I'm just saying that, that they're variations of normal. Yeah. And I mentioned this before, there's several breech babies in my family. And so I think that that's part of why I feel so passionate about it is because, that you know, my mom, my mom's first baby was a vaginal breech delivery. Um, my cousin was breech. She had a daughter that was breech. Um, my aunt was breech. So it's like it just kind of runs in our family for some reason. And it wasn't a problem back then. We just had our babies, you know. Right. So so the answer to the the question, the, the short answer to that, the the long answer that we just gave is yes, there are slightly more injuries to breech babies. Oh, and I want to I want to give a, a real big word about bruising of the presenting part. This is an important part that people need to understand. Um, when a baby comes head first, their head gets sometimes black and blue or they get caput secundum on their head uh, or it's asynclitic or they can even get a cephalohematoma from whatever reason, some babies just do that, all right? Nobody thinks twice about that. I mean, they look at it, they go, they put a little hat on them so you don't have to look at it. And then and then at the end of that, and then a few days it's gone. But when a baby comes out breached, the same thing happens, but it happens to the soft tissues. So you might see incredibly swollen labia or incredibly swollen scrotum or a big, huge circular blue, black and blue mark on one of the thighs, the, usually the presenting anterior thigh. And that's, and that's normal. And that will resolve within four five, six days, like anything else. But there was this case, you probably know about it. And I know about it because our friend Christine Loria got involved in it, where in Florida, some couple had a baby that was born breech at home and wasn't breathing well the next day or something. They took it in and the doctor in the ER knew nothing about breech birth, saw the, all the bruising on the labia and accused the family of abusing the baby. And they took the baby away and, and all this, uh, nonsense again because nobody knew anything about breech birth um and of course it, it took them weeks to get their baby back and it took an expert like christine Loria to come in and and help out with that but that's crazy so these are things that you know that 
it should be well known. Uh, any OB in that hospital should have been called down to the ER and said, oh, you had a breech baby? This is normal. But they didn't. I don't know the story, but all I know is that that, that something like that should never happen. Never happen. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor for Fit. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um taking my suggestion she's like you know just laying in bed nursing all day i'm feeling a little sore you know any stretches and i said you should really try this lying in program that they have it's great for postpartum it's 30 days one video a day less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises visualization and belly massages i mean come on that sounds amazing it is amazing. and then yeah. And then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, the birthfit community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code INSTINCTS1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or go to birthfit.com, use the code INSTINCTS2, to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Let me get into this because I want to get into some of the gaslighting that goes on. And I want to correct mm -hmm. some. Rumors. So I'm going to read uh, this consult that was sent to me by uh, midwife um, Ashley, and I'll just leave it at that. And this is a, a follow-up office visit with a maternal fetal medicine specialist, and it was dated uh, November 15th, so just recently. Um, she was seen, patient has no complaints, good fetal movement, no contractions or bleeding. Uh, number one, 38-week pregnancy. Number two, these are the, by the way, that's a problem list. So number one is 38 week. <laughs> Such a problem. Number two, breach malpresentation. The problem, silly baby. 
Right. But not only that, but the word mal, I hate because it mm-hmm. means bad. Right. Breach, should just say breach presentation. Failed, external, external cephalic version times two. Discussed in detail indications and contraindications for vaginal breach delivery. Um, keeps going. Vaginal breach, even with practitioners with experience with hundreds of breach deliveries, is a dangerous endeavor. Success for a planned vaginal breach delivery is only 70% in the most experienced hands. That that it seems really a really odd statistic. I'd like to see the information. Well, I can, tell you what, I can tell you where that comes from. It comes from sort of, it's even lower than that. It's in the 60s. It comes from a lot of the, the, the major studies, like the Promota study, the term breach trial had 50 some percent success rate, stuff like that. But there's a big difference between primips and multips mm-hmm. and in in decent hands. Remember Dr. Dr. Wu, who used to do breaches at Glendale Adventist had a 90% success rate. Um, I had an 80% success rate with primips and I had a hundred percent success rate with multips at home at home. Yeah. I, I, Cause I never, you know, I never kept stats when I was in the hospital. I just, doctors don't do that sort of thing. So yeah. I just did. But again, I want to reiterate that my numbers did not reach statistical significance. So you can't say that that's the way it will always be. And I certainly don't believe that all that 100% of all multips will always have a successful vaginal breach delivery. Just in my practice, that's what they did. But so again, can we break that? Can, but again, can we break that down a little bit? How? So we talk about 70% success or 80% success. So how did you determine what was successful? You had a stalled labor and right? Most of the time it was either, a stalled labor. It could be a stalled labor, labor or you theoretically could have a cord prolapse early on. Uh, anything that anything that didn't lead to a vaginal delivery in the home setting, correct? Right. But most of the t- most of the time that you transported and this was considered it was not successful. It was not a not an emergency. Not oh, was, yeah, we didn't have any yeah. in my paper. We had no emergencies transports for breach. We had no uh, no ambulance calls for breach. We had a couple. We called ambulance afterwards because babies needed help. But but we we never had any that were called because there was a problem letting a woman labor with a breech baby, whether it was complete, incomplete, or frank breach. No. Right. So I just want you guys, as you're listening to this, to just critically think about it. How are these things determined? And and are they determined from that medical mindset? I'm not critiquing you, Stu. I'm just saying, you know, it's interesting to look at like what we consider successful and not and who's determining when that's called. It's not that you have a baby that's half delivered and you can't get the head out. That's not what we're talking about. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. And by the way, the, we can just digress for just a second and we can talk about this, the, the biggest fear mongering thing of all, which is the trapped head, right? In term breaches, a, a trapped head is nothing is never, but it's extremely, extremely rare. And we're talking about a trapped head means it's trapped inside an incompletely dilated cervix. And it's almost impossible for a term baby for its body to come out where its head can't is still stuck inside the the uh, uterus itself. Now you can have a aftercoming head that's deflexed, 
or extended, I guess is a better way to say it, that needs maneuvers to assist it. But this is what a trained breach attendant is trained to do. This is what Breach Without Borders teaches. This is what I teach in my two-day seminar. We teach the maneuvers that you can do in different positions, upright or lithotomy, to help flex the baby's head. And doctors have the option of even putting on Piper forceps, but they're not teaching that anymore either. So the trapped head thing is, a, is it just, it, it conjures up an image of something that would be frightening to anybody. Of course it does. But it doesn't really exist in the real world, except in extremely rare conditions. And usually it's extreme prematurity that, that, that has that. So put that aside, but you're very right about where does the, where does he get this number from? It's, it, I, I don't know exactly. And he probably doesn't either. Um, but I, you know, uh, okay. But at least, you know, at least he didn't say it was like 30%. So I'll give him credit for that. He said it was okay. 70%. By the way, which is really interesting because that means that in the skilled hands, if 70% are successful, that means you only have a cesarean section rate of 30%. Which is about what it is right now for, for vertex babies. So right. which is lower, <laughs> lower than it is in most hospitals uh, in the country. So, right. <laughs> Okay. Perinatal mortality of a breech fetus at term undergoing a trial of vaginal delivery results in six per thousand or 0.6% up to 48 per thousand or 4.8% perinatal mortality. So he's saying somewhere between 0. 0.6 to 4.8% of babies who, um, yeah, 4.8% 4, 4 of babies will die if they have a vaginal breech delivery. I just gave you the numbers. All right. I don't know where he got those numbers from. I mean, I, I ideally, I you know I don't, I wouldn't expect people when they do a consult to give references, but it would be really nice if they did. Because oh, I'd, that, love, I'd love to write him and ask for his references. Yeah. Cause he basically saying 4.8% is about one in 21 chance of your baby dying with a vaginal breach delivery that I've never heard of such a thing. Right. Uh -huh. Head entrapment. Cerebral injury and intracranial hemorrhage, cord prolapse, and general asphyxia are the most common causes of fetal death. Okay. I don't, you know, yeah, that's true. Okay. But how common is it? Right. <laughs> uh, there's a 400% increase in traumatic injury at the time of delivery. Where does he come up with that? All right. Again, this is this is a consult from a midwife with a woman who's breech getting wanting to get a second opinion because the woman wants a home delivery. This it sounds like this is the, not the person you should send your clients to for a second opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. saying. Yeah, but it also sounds like all right. I mean, I'm going to ask you, I can already ask you, I'll ask you to make a prediction. Mm. What, is he, what risks about cesarean section does he talk about? Zero. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> okay. We're going to keep going here. Okay. Most protocols, most protocols for vaginal breach options include, these are safety protocols, these are the protocols like I would have. These aren't my protocols because these are really rigid protocols, but he says, skilled practitioner. In this case, no. Multiparous patient. 
In this case, no. Frank breach, yes. But why not complete or incomplete breach? Why does he only pick Frank breach? Flexed head. In this case, no, he says. So maybe the baby didn't have a flexed head. I don't know. Baby's head doesn't need to be flexed all the time. It just needs to be able to flex its head. Then he puts, it, he puts 37 to 40 weeks. All right. So she was like, she's like 30, I don't know, 30. Oh, she's 38 weeks. So he put question mark because he doesn't know. But why do you limit yourself to 37 to 40 weeks? Mm -hmm. Literature on breach goes down to, you know, there's no increased morbidity for babies greater than 1500 grams, which is three pounds, five ounces, um, born breach. Uh, that defies even, you know, what you'd expect when you say you need only term breaches, you don't want preemie breaches, but preemies down to 32 weeks, breach delivery is probably okay. And people say, well, the, the butt is smaller than the head. Well, that's actually not true. If you take a tape measure and you go around the baby's head and do what's called a head circumference, and then you take the same tape measure, obviously, and you go around the baby's butt and two thighs, you'll find that that diameter, excuse me, that circumference is actually bigger. Okay. Um, estimated fetal weight, 2,500 to 3,500 grams. So that's even under eight pounds. Mm -hmm. There's no data to support what he's saying. I mean, this is, these guidelines are sort of rigid guidelines from, from papers that came out in the late seventies and early eighties, but really have no bearing in today. All right. And her estimated fetal weight at this time was 3,395 grams. So he says, Within three more days, she'll be over the limit. Okay. So no other comorbidities. And apparently she's an A2 diabetic. Uh, she's a gestational diabetic. Okay. So uh, that that rules her out. You, not, you need to have an adequate pelvis by x-ray or CT pelvimetry. Which is not really done anymore. Well, it is in, in academia. And it is mm -hmm. in, in centers that are doing research on breach delivery. Mm -hmm. But it makes no sense because when you do an x-ray or an MRI on someone's pelvis, you have them laying on their back. And laying on their back is the worst position you can be in as far as the diameters of your pelvis and your pelvic bones and markers. What we used to do when, when I was a resident, we would send the, the least qualified person, like the student, up with the woman to x-ray on eighth floor where they would get an x-ray, a flat a cross table lateral and a flat plate of their abdomen laying flat on their back. And then they bring the films down and we would take out a ruler and we'd measure the interspinous diameter, the AP diameter and the transverse diameter. And it had to be 10 centimeters, 11 centimeters and 12 centimeters. And if they were half a centimeter off on any one of those measurements, they got a section. And that's because they were laying flat and they were laying flat on their back when we did it. I mean, What else is the problem with doing an x-ray on a pelvis? Oh, I mean the x-ray? Well, yes. But also the pel a female pelvis is dynamic. It yes. changes and moves and opens and torques. And you yes. can't, well, that's the, you that's can't the x-ray that. Yeah, no, that's the whole point. Yeah. If they would have if they would have done an MRI on her when she's in the all fours position, she'd have passed every woman would pass those measurements. Almost everyone would pass those measurements. But again, so he's still in the mindset because he's not up to date on his breach information that they need x-ray or CT pelvimetry. 
They need rapid and uninterrupted progressive labor. What's a question mark on that one? Yeah, and who decides rapid? Yeah, who, decide, who, who defines decides, that? And try getting an uninterrupted labor when you're in the hospital. With a breach, <laughs> in particular. And then, and then again, this is about home breach. He says, availability of anesthesia or an epidural, he says, no. So yeah, there's no, they, they don't have that at home. So basically he's continuing to list reasons why this woman should never attempt this, uh, her desire for a breech birth. Availability of Piper forceps, no. Availability of an OR for rapid C-section, no. Availability of a NICU and blood bank, no. So recommendations. I highly recommend against any attempt at vaginal breech delivery, especially outside of the hospital. Attempts at vaginal breech delivery are overt violations of the obstetric standard of care. You saw that. Yes. I, I sent it to you. I sent this to you. Um, due to due to the term breach and the and the type on the gestational diabetes or A2 diabetes, I recommend a C-section within seven days. Okay. Well, that's clear. So no ambiguity a, in his recommendation. Everyone with a breech baby in Texas, be careful. Don't go yeah. to this guy. Don't no. Go to that guy. <laughs> no, they 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 listen, bliss. Yeah. I swear to God, I, I I don't mean this with disrespect, but they don't know anything. And they're the experts. And the government makes midwives get these opinions in order to practice their trade. I mean, I, I don't know how I could say it any different, how backwards that is. Nothing, nobody's holding his feet to the fire for anything that he said on there. And I'm sure he truly believes it. Because mm -hmm. he's probably like the very opening question we had, probably extremely scared of breech babies. Hmm. Okay, so that's that. So do, uh, I have a, a few other things about breech that I thought I'd just rattle off. Okay, great. Um, just a couple of myths. Uh, ECV is dangerous. That's externocephalic version. It's not mm -hmm. dangerous in most settings and in most uh, uh, the hospital makes it into a high danger thing simply by the way they act. You've got to do it in the hospital with an OR ready and an IV and terbutaline and probably an epidural in place. And, you know, you have all these people around. It's a setup for failure, but that's the way they do it. And so that's what you have to do. But it's not in and of itself dangerous. Do some babies after an ECV have uh, bradycardia and fetal distress and need emergency? Season? Yes, of course. That, that happens, but it's, a, but it's very rare and not a reason not to have an ECV. But in my mind, there's two reasons to have an ECV. One is a simple one. And that's if you, if you baby stays breech and you want a home birth in California, you had to hire me, which costs a lot of extra money. So if we could turn or your baby a, or have a free birth mm -hmm. or have a, but you could turn your baby and then it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to go through the extra money or the extra, all that extra stuff. Mm -hmm. The other reason to do it is if you have no choice in your community and no ability to get out of your community. Um, and that if you stay breached, you're going to have a C-section. Then trying an ECV makes sense. But then again, you have to figure out, is the person doing my ECV good at it? Is their heart in it? 
do they really want it to succeed? Uh, all these things. So that's a that's a thing. ECV is not dangerous, but it's also got questions about it too. Uh, we talked about head entrapment already and cord prolapse. Cord prolapse happens about one in every 250 breach deliveries. It's more common in breaches that are incomplete or complete. But even though it's more common in those, it's less dangerous in those because there's more room for the cord to fall through. That's why it happens more commonly. But because there's more room, it's unlikely that the cord will be compressed right away. So you have time to do things, whether it's transport or whether she's completely dilated and you could do a breach extraction or something like that. When the cord prolapses with a frank breach, just like it does with a cephalic breach, that's far more likely to be a, a, an emergency. And that's a potential problem. So it's nice ahead of time to know where the cord is, make sure it's not down low by the butt. You can do that with ultrasound in your prenatal visits and don't rupture the membranes too early. Make sure the, the fetal part is well engaged before you do that, if you have to do that or don't do it at all, which is what you're, which, you know, people can't see you nodding, but I, I, I know you've got that big smile on your face with that nod. Yeah. And then another myth is that no ethical doctor, no ethical doctor will support breach delivery. I hear that all the time. And, and he said it. He, what, what, what did he say? He said, um, uh, attempts at vaginal breach delivery are overt violations of the obstetric standards of care. I wish people could see us. <laughs> what does ACOG say about breach, Stu? ACOG says that, that uh, it's reasonable with a skilled practitioner under hospital-based protocol guidelines. All right. They don't support home birth for anything, so they're never going to support home beef, home breach birth. Okay, um, but ACOG supports properly selected vaginal breach birth under specific guidelines. I don't think they need to be as specific as the scary guidelines he put out there, but they have certain guidelines. So ACOG supports vaginal breach delivery, but that's an ACOG guideline that most of my colleagues will choose to ignore. Mm -hmm. they'll, they, they, we've talked about this a million times they'll cherry pick the guidelines that they want to follow like the arrive trial or whatever but they'll and they'll ignore the ones that don't suit the way they want to practice it's just it's just human nature okay so we've talked about ACOG's opinion the Royal College's opinion selection criteria what do I use to select a home breach birth and this could be extrapolated to a hospital breach birth so I, I think there are nine things. I probably won't remember them all, but one is term. And term for me is like 35, 36 weeks and above and not ending at 40 weeks or 41 or 42. I treat them the same as any head down baby. With The baby's fine. We just keep waiting. Uh, term, uh, no gross anomalies in the baby, obviously. Um, and gross anomalies, I don't mean things like a cleft lip. I mean things like spina bifida or gastroschisis or hydrocephalus or some major anatomic problem that wouldn't that would make vaginal delivery in any baby not the right thing to do um estimated fetal weight between five and nine and a half pounds but if i had a baby that i thought estimated 10 pounds would i not let her have a trial of labor of course i would let her do what she wants that that's, would be that's that's different i think that you've evolved uh oh yeah in the well, last my, my, my guidelines have that. right because I realize that if she has a 10 pound baby, if it if if it's not going to come out, it's going to stall for the same reason as a vertex baby stalls. Mm -hmm. Go and then go get a C-section. 
in the, if it was a vertex baby at home, they might go in and get an epidural and maybe some pit, but we're breech babies. And when they go to the hospital, they know they're going to get section. So uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Um, flexed head. So again, I we talked about it briefly. Babies have to have the ability to flex their head because the last cardinal movement of a breech vaginal birth is head flexion, as opposed to a vertex delivery where the second to last cardinal movement is actually head extension and then external rotation. Um, let's see. I'm sure I'm missing some. Uh, clinically adequate maternal pelvis, which I jokingly say is a woman with a pelvis, uh, because I don't I don't um, restrict people based on that unless they've had some congenital anomaly or major crushing car accident or something where I would really want to get an orthopedic consult about something like that. But that uh, that's never happened. It's just it's in the things. Um, uh, I'm missing one major one, but I can't remember what it was. Position. Did you talk about position? Break or complete or incomplete breach. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and then right, the right mental stuff. Right mental stuff. Uh, no maternal medical problems. Labor has to start spontaneously. We don't induce labor at home generally. I mean, do we do castor oil sometimes? Yes. But no, no official induction. And then, of course, the real no-brainer is that both mother and baby have to tolerate labor. Right. And then, as you said, the parents have to have the right mindset to do it. Right. So th those are the general guidelines. Okay, so skills. Don't you love that I know that? I've I've sat with you for enough consults. I I know. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm and the fact that I'm forgetting things is, is <laughs> uh, you know it is my my brain is so full of like information, but it's mm -hmm. like it's like in a garage where you don't know where you left it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's in a box. I know it's in there it's somewhere. somewhere. It's somewhere. <laughs> um, cardinal, we talked about the cardinal movements of lab, uh, of breach. No, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but they come out sacrum transverse. They tend to rotate tum to bum. Uh, the legs deliver. You basically see baby doing scrunches. You see that if the arms are in the right position, you, your baby will turn the right way and you'll see a little cleavage of the chest because the arms are being squished together. And then one arm will come out, the other arm will come out, and the baby's head will deliver by flexion. That's pretty normal. There's this, There was a big thing going around a few years ago called hands off the breach. And I think the pendulum swung way too far that way. And I've seen some births. Some people will send me some uh, videos and I've seen some births where people are waiting too long. So one of the things we teach at the course that I teach is when to intervene. Mm -hmm. and, and the signs that the baby's okay or not okay, things like capillary filling and tone. And what does the cord look like? And what was the heartbeat like uh, in the second stage when they were pushing? Was it perfect or were they already having variables at that point? Um, those sorts of things are things that we teach at the course. Not obviously something I can do in a podcast in, in the few minutes that we have left. I'm no, not a but, I, but I would say, and I've said this before, but since we're doing a whole podcast on Just Breach right now, um, the thing to remember is that in a vertex baby, I like to equate breach, um, you know, supporting a breach delivery where we don't see the normal cardinal movements and we know that we need to step in with our skills, very similar to a head down baby where we see the signs of a shoulder dystocia. And, you know, we can see the coloring in the baby's head. The baby doesn't rotate. They do turtling. And we know that that baby is not going to come out on its own. It needs a little bit of help. And it's the same with a breech baby. We keep our hands off. We let the baby do its thing. And if we see these 
um, indications that the baby is not rotating normally or maybe is having a little bit more challenges and needs help um, the same way that we would with a head down baby. So it really isn't any different. It's just about knowing what to look for, knowing what's normal, knowing what's not, and having the courage and the skill set to be able to step in and and support those babies when needed. And I would think I would tell you that that I get a really a lot of positive feedback, uh, both right at the time of the seminar and then months, months and years later, where people will write me and say, yeah, you know, I, I had a surprise breach and I knew exactly what to do. And, you know, if I could be honored by anything or mem- remembered for anything, that's the kind of thing that I really that really touches me greatly is to hear a story of some way where I where I paid it forward. I learned from some mentors way back in the 80s. And I've been and paying it forward now and and changing the lives of these mothers and these babies and these mothers' future babies is something that just is very, very touching, touching for me. Yes. The last thing I want to say, because we were talking a little bit about cardinal movements and what to watch for and stuff like that, is to be careful of algorithms. There are some very good breach practitioners out in the world that are coming out like with flow charts. You do this and then you wait three three to five minutes for this. And if that doesn't out by seven minutes and this and this, it's like, I don't teach that when people want to learn that skill. Um, I think breach without borders is much more academic than me. I teach a more practical uh, way of doing things and looking at this, each individual situation and summing it up and saying, listen, they said it could wait, take three to five minutes for the baby's head to come out after it reaches the umbilicus. Yeah. But this baby doesn't have 30 seconds. So let's get this baby out now. Okay. If you waited three to five minutes, you'd be a problem. Sometimes waiting five minutes, your baby's still fine. And if it's moving and descending and rotating, then you could wait longer. So that's why I, I'm not a big fan of algorithms because algorithms are, are are set out to be guidelines, but then they become benchmarks for quality and can sometimes then be used against you because you didn't follow the algorithm and you did something and then you got an outcome that wasn't ideal. And then someone blames you because you didn't follow the outcome not knowing that if you follow the outcome, it wouldn't have been any different anyway. Yeah. I mean, follow the, follow the algorithm. Sorry. And that's, you know, that's what makes these things an art form, right? Because it is, it's being in the moment, it's individualizing, it's using your senses and the information that you have and the stories that you've been told and bringing it all together to know, hopefully, what the right thing to do is in that moment, but it is an art form. It's not, you can't make all of this quantifiable because as human beings, we're very individualized. You know, you just, you, you have to take that individual mom and baby into account in those moments. And individual individualization is the really, really the key. And it's the problem because there are so few choices. Um, If you are out there with a breech baby near term, um, there are things you can try to do to help turn the baby you can do spinning babies you can go to chiropractic you can get uh acupuncture and moxibustion don't stress about it because the more stress you are the more sort of hormones you're putting out that are probably not conducive to the baby turning in the first place and more tense and more tension in your body um but do you put the work in maybe even put the work in 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 the second trimester even before you know if your baby's going to be breached or not start to find a it's kind of like being going into a, a building and just checking where the exits are. You know, you want to know if you had to get out, how you're going to get out. So you check, you don't wait till the fire alarm goes off before you start looking. You sort of look around. It's the same thing here. 
find an option for somebody in your community that does breach birth just in case. Um, and you don't necessarily have to go to that person right off the bat, or you might have to find that there isn't anybody in your community, and then you need to find another community or travel to another state or have those things in, in order. I have been compiling, and I still haven't put it on a spreadsheet yet, but a list of, of breach practitioners that have been referred to me by different midwives and patients and and listeners and stuff. And I've got, you know, in many, and there are still some huge breach desert, breach maternity care deserts, but there are areas where people can go if they need to. And the, and there are people they can find. And then there are even some traveling midwives who will come to you. You plan far enough ahead of time. The problem with breach, of course, is that sometimes you don't know your breach till all of a sudden 39 weeks and you find out your breach and now you've, you're scrambling. That's why I'm saying have a, have an exit strategy, have a, have a plan in place ahead of time great great is that it are we done yeah i mean i i i have like a one little letter i'd like to read to end with that's okay, okay. sure okay this is i i call this a nice story of unlearning everything <laughs> <laughs> so good morning afternoon and middle of the night dr stew and goddess bliss this is from iliana and it's from october my name is Ileana. I can't thank you enough for all the work and dedication and information you put into your podcast. I was a postpartum RN at a New York hospital and got fired after refusing to get vaccinated. I want to thank you for speaking out against the truth. <laughs> I love the way she said that. Speaking out against the truth, all capitals, and how this America is not the America we love and respect. I'm currently pregnant with my second baby. And I am so happy to say you guys have unbrainwashed me. Yes. Everything I learned, everything, what would you say? I said, yes. <laughs> yes. Everything I learned in nursing school and the hospital I've had to unlearn. Who says that? <laughs> Still. Yeah. I had to unlearn pretty much everything that I learned in residency. Right. <laughs> it helped. I just can't believe what we would put, we would put babies through, what we would put babies through separating babies and mamas, doing transcutaneous billies on all babies, bathing them before they go home, advising moms to not sleep with the baby. I am in awe. And to think it was a baby-friendly hospital. Right. Just, no, it's a wallet-friendly hospital. Anyways, I wanted to say thank you for educating us on what is actually right and best for our pregnancies and babies. And I want to add a caveat. We just want people to have the information. I really don't. I mean, if people want to get all four vaccines and you know what the risks and benefits are and you've been well-informed and you read the look at the package insert and you want to do it because for whatever reason, then that's fine. But to be told that they're safe in pregnancy is a lie because no one knows. I had my firstborn at a hospital. I'll never do that again. The fear they instill in you is horrible. I'm happy to say that my second baby will be born in May of 2024 at my home with a lovely CPM who has actually met you both in Kentucky. She was at the breach conference. Mm -hmm. I am excited and looking forward to my beautiful and healing home birth. I call it my redemption birth. You've heard that term before. Yeah. Completely safe and extremely motivated that I have you both to thank for. I now live in Maryland and have been working for an amazing case management company I guess that's somebody that like works for insurance companies and looks at cases and stuff like that. And I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. So now she has a whole different Korea. take 
pace management. I think that's great. Thank you for being my for believing in myself, my body, and my baby. And I and I wrote down here. Bliss would say that we aren't the reason, but happy to know you did the work and found your your found yourself. Beautiful. Right. Yeah. Yay. Thanks, Eliana. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, even though it's two weeks late, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Me too. I'm so happy for you that you get to be with your family and your babies and your grandbabies and celebrate a wedding. And how beautiful is that? And I will see you on Monday. Yeah. And it might have a big announcement for everybody next week, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you about it next week. Do <laughs> I get a, do I get a preview? Yeah, maybe after we're done okay. recording. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so everybody, gotta go, everybody. <laughs> yeah, support our sponsors. BirthFit, <laughs> Element, Needed. Right? Yeah. I and go all. check out all of the interesting and amazing stuff that we are doing on the Birthing Instincts podcast uh, website. We've got new swag. We've got um, events coming up, um, all kinds of free documents and um, some informed consents. So go check it out and stay abreast with our growing community because we're really excited about what's coming in the in the next year. Yeah, and I'm very I'm very grateful to you for lighting a fire under me because I sort of got settled into my homestead in Utah and I know I travel a lot, but but I'm really looking forward to 2024. We're gonna get we're gonna do some really bigger things. Yeah. It's gonna yeah. be fun. All right, okay. bye everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 